0: Hey everyone, this is Stefan Barrett with Feed the Machine. Today I have on the show Taylor Davidson. Taylor and I discuss when to get your startup financials right, business innovation and scale, and we talk about native apps versus websites. That's today on Feed the Machine. Taylor, thank you for joining me on Feed the Machine. Uh, thank you. Looking
1: forward to joining today.
0: Yes, no problem. So you've, uh, I, I read your bio and a little bit about yourself. You list off things like technology, advertising, digital media, photography, venture capital, fundraising. Uh, that That's quite a lot of interest. Tell me how you, you reached all of those places and and uh, a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. So uh, I, I live in New York City, um, and I guess... You know, I've lived and moved um, a lot, lived a lot of different places kind of throughout my life, and I've also been through, I would say, a fair amount of transition and change, changing, you know, things that I do. Um, Right now, I I run a a boutique agency that I call Unstructured Ventures, Um, and one of the things I do under that is uh, do a lot of consulting and work with startups. Specifically around financial strategy and business modeling. And that's, even though there's a lot of different areas that I've been involved in kind of throughout my life and career, like that's one thing that I've kind of done consistently throughout is always work with uh, emerging and growing companies on really core fundamental business strategy issues Using financial models as a way to understand kind of core business needs, and I've actioned on that in many different ways uh, as a consultant and what we do now, what I do now with uh, a lot of startups, but also in venture capital as a direct investor, uh, as a mentor and advisor to lots of accelerators and incubators and such. Um, But also in past lives, as entrepreneurial projects uh, I've worked on, or even inside big companies as well that I've worked on in the past, Um, that's kind of uh, there's always that 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 focus on finance and business strategy has always been something kind of core to what I do.
0: That's very interesting. I'd I'd love to hear a story. Give me an example of how a financial model has identified a core business need in one of the, the the businesses you've been involved with.
1: So, uh, a bit of a backstory. It's interesting when you bring up the concept of finance and financial modeling within startups, because we we are uh, focused on product. We want to build product. We want to build great experiences, right? And we want to and product and the and building something people love is what takes precedence over everything else. Um, and so. Financial model modeling and core business strategy is something that we tend to not spend as much effort and focus on. And, and I, in, in large, I think it's right. If you're given a choice of a trade off between building a great product, product or building a great spreadsheets, choose product. At the same time, though, um, the process of thinking about financial modeling is something pretty valuable and important. And I think, I think that the You know, the process of building a financial model that allows you to understand how your business works and understand kind of key business decisions, I think that process is more important than the artifact of a model itself. Um, And I think that the way we think about finance, we tend to think about the model, the Excel sheet and focus on uh, very small specific things in there to the detriment of thinking about really, really big business issues. so this is one so one example of how I often work with this on clients is I work with a lot of startups around fundraising and how to effectively tell the story uh, about their business but specifically the financial story about their business um, and back it up with financials Um, and it's very common actually for a startup to have Really, a great pitch deck, a uh, great story, great explanation of what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they can be successful and are uniquely differentiated, succeed, and all those great things we expect. Um, but then fall flat around finance, and oftentimes it's because uh, they, they 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 have a lot of the stuff there, but they had they don't quite know how to package it. Was to be that that one like supporting point or couple key points that really show clarity around their business model. Um, and that's one of the things I spent a lot of time thinking about. But it's not, it's less about finance uh, itself and it's more about how it's interpreted.
0: I see what you're saying. So then you created um, some of these financial models that you now give or sell uh, essentially yeah. to startups. Um, this is through Foresight. Yeah. And tell me about that.
1: Right. Right, so I've been building financial models for startups for um, uh, shoot I guess probably fifteen years now, so. You know, I originally worked in private equity I built financial transactional models uh, for uh, m and deals in terms of acquiring companies. Then I uh, went to go work for a startup, actually. This is back in 2000, 2002. I um, went to go work for a startup and built a lot of our financial models and all, for all the deals and structures that we were doing, um, as well as building the model and kind of uh, leading the fundraising process for that as well. I then went to like business school and a lot of the stuff I started doing coming out of business school was helping friends with their startups um, and helping them prepare pitches. And I had lived in the world of kind of building financial models for the last four or five years before that. And so, you know, for me, it was like an obvious thing to kind of help, help and jump on and help. Um, and I started doing a lot of work like that with people, um, helping come in and sit down with them and understand the business and, like, build a full model that uh, completely encapsulate everything about their business, right? Mm-hmm. And then I found that, 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 for me, the biggest issue was, well, how do I, how do I scale or how do I scale my impact? Right? I mean scale from a business sense, I mean like how can I have a beneficial impact on more people that doesn't require me to sit down through a lengthy process with everybody. And so that's when I say well, okay let's actually like let's build templates. template, let's try to build a set of like templates and things out there. And this is when I first started looking around the idea of templates you know there are very few examples on the web and there still aren't that many today. Um, and so I built a couple like small templates that were just simple ways for people to do some basic modeling around costs and some basic understanding of, of how to do a financial model. And it's difficult actually because you're, you're kind of combining two things. You're teaching one like how to use Excel, like how to use this tool um, as well as how to actually use this tool to build a model. That makes sense for you. It's it's can be a difficult thing to kind of combine those two skill sets together in terms of a template, but it's something that I've kind of worked on for the past I don't know eight years now or so. So, so I built I, I think I built and released the first template in 2006, and I've been continually refining and changing and modifying them. Um, over the years, to try to basically build better models and that are easier for people to understand, easier to, to utilize, and easier for them to go from zero—I have no idea what to do—to hey, yeah, I actually understand what's going on, and um, I can build a, an accurate and uh, representation of my business going forward. I actually just—I just re-released a set of models and website and everything uh, just a couple weeks ago. Um, with a new set of financial models for startups and investors who's trying to c- encapsulate a lot of those learnings. But you know, it's been something that I've done for you know, a long time. Um, I think for me, like, the, the biggest change in my like, vision or way of going about it is just trying to find ways to continue to make it simpler, um, build in more of the logic that's in our head. Right? Cause we have, when, I, when we go back and forth with somebody individually, you know, I can go back and forth with them and take them through all the logic in my head to find the right way to interpret it. But when I build a template, I, I try to build it so that all the logic in my head is, is there on the page. Um, and so that someone can type in something and everything else in the model will change automatically based on this logic that I try to embed from my brain into the sheet.
0: So I've got a, a startup idea. And I'm, um, it's just an idea, right? This is like a seed stage thing. And yeah. do I need to worry about the financial model before I even build anything and before I have any customers?
1: No. no, I don't, I don't think so. No. I mean, so know, it's, it's, whole, whole, my, my whole thing is like, you, you should, you need to spend time first, you know, first and foremost, I, I believe the same way as other people do is, yeah. you know, understand if people are going to use the thing that you're building understand if they're going to love it first and spend time on that. The way I, It is more of is is people who the way the way it normally gets used, uh, the templates get used, and the way I think it's more valuable to think of the financial modeling process is: Hey, I actually have something. I probably have a business. Mm. I probably already incorporated in many of these cases, and I in many cases they're used specifically around I need to build a financial model because I need to raise money, Mm. right? I need to raise, and I need to raise money. Uh, I need to be able to generate a vision of the future that I can show investors, and I can show that I know what I'm talking about, right? Um, and I, you know, it's interesting. Like, there's a whole range of things that that could mean in terms of the actual artifact of a model that investors expect it could be very, very little to incredibly robust, um, and I think that depends in a lot of ways in terms of the own experience uh, level of investors. Um, but at the end of the day though, like I, I always say that, you know, once you come to that point, you need to be able to tell a a story that makes sense about your business. And, you know, some bit of a financial projection is kind of necessary for that.
0: And so this is really to to that end. It's about growth stage startups, startups that have traction that, like you said, need to now go raise money on the subject of raising money. Is it ever a good idea to try to raise, raise seed stage money then? What do you mean? Like if in the very beginning where uh, you don't have, uh, maybe maybe the startup doesn't have a fully built product
1: yet. Well, I mean, so, so just as so you know, like, I, I do spend a lot of time working with, outside of the actual financial modeling. I spend a lot of time working with startups on fundraising. Mm. Um, I, used to work as, I used to work as a venture capitalist and do direct investing into May startups, and I do a lot of advising for that uh, kind of currently. Um, I actually, uh, invest, I'm an investor in residence at Venture of America, which means I help uh, a lot of their alumni and their startups coming out of their, uh, a lot of the fellows that are coming out of their program. Uh, help them start companies, and so like this is a specific thing that I spend a lot of time around. Mm-hmm. Um, my I, I tend to think of it as you know the process of raising capital is the process of convincing somebody that you're going to be able to build something successful, and that they should be a part of us. Mm-hmm. Your process to convince somebody is going to be, and your ability is going to be, and the things you need to use to convince somebody is going to be drastically different depending on who you are who you're talking to, what you're building, a whole other set of variables. You know, if you, you know, if you have other aspects to yourself and to who you are and your past success or uh, relationships with investors that go outside of that, um, then you may not need to have something built, right? You may be able to raise money earlier. Yeah. If you don't have that, and you, you, then you'll probably need to do more to build something to prove to somebody say, yeah, I can build this. You know, um, but I, so I don't think it's a simple answer. Uh, I think it's something that's more fundamentally based upon, you know, what do you have to do to convince somebody that that you're this is going to be successful, and that's going that's going to be very different for all different different sets of people.
0: Yeah, and speaking of successful products, you've got people like or companies like Google, Apple. Uh, uh, huge companies now um and uh the internet of things becoming more and more popular and more and and as it grows bigger but yeah. we, we've got this scenario of data privacy, and you wrote recently about this idea um, the Google and the Apple model are now starting to become very very different uh, what's yeah your, what's your take on that
1: yeah uh it's a really interesting thing um, there's definitely a world there's we we've been living recently in this world where uh, more and more data is a key competitive advantage for a company, right? The more I know about you, uh, the more opportunities it gives me to know more about you and deliver a better, a better, a better service for you. Um, and this has been, a, I think, the thread to a lot of the rise of the big data economy and all the companies that are building out there doing that. Um, I can tell you, I've seen tons of pitch decks over the years where companies say, hey, we're going to do this thing and we're going to have, we're going to generate all this great data about somebody and then we'll basically use it for something. Mm -hmm. You know, but the problem has always been, they've always been a little less clear in terms of how they're going to utilize it, right? So we've been built, a lot of the, the premise around big data has been um, built up on this idea that we will find a way to utilize it later on down the line. And I think what's kind of happening is we're getting to a point where people are starting to recognize some of the negative re- repercussions that come from that. You know, I think we're perfectly comfortable like um, putting data out there and more bits about ourselves if we feel like we get something back in return for it. Um, but I think in many cases, and for a lot of the products out there, we haven't seen that. We, if, you know, we don't. We use something. I don't really know how my data is being used. I don't really know if it's being kept safe. I don't really understand how uh, giving more information to myself helps t- helps me get a better service or experience back in return. And so I think we've seen other companies like Apple per se say, "Hey, you know, it's not necessary." Use it as a as a bit of a competitive positioning. Um, uh, response to that to say, you know, we don't need all of that. Like, we don't need all that data to be able to deliver and build a better service. Or we're going to use data in a different way, which is what I, I think Apple is actually doing. Uh, there's an example, actually, a company called Cotap They do uh, uh, enterprise-based messaging. They Actually, I think just last week or so announced that the default for their enterprise customers is, is for, I'm going to get the exact, the exact details wrong, but uh, the default is for... Or all the data to be deleted after I think two weeks, wow. right? And they're, and, right, and they're basically saying, hey, you know, we don't, you know, all the it data it doesn't have to be stored. Um, there's no, necess- necess- no real necessary reason for uh, everything, all sorts of like basic communication to be stored forever. Um, so the default is. You can as an enterprise, you can turn it, you can change the default, but the default is for it to, to turn it off and they're calling it Cotab clear. And I think we're going to see more examples of that right? I think we see this in like, the sense like passwords. Mm-hmm. Like a lot more companies don't want to use passwords as much. Um, I mean, Apple's already taken a little bit of this approach uh, with Apple Pay and tokenization. Right, so I mean, Apple Pay is built upon the premise that hey, when you when you use Apple Pay for transactions, you know your actual credit card information is not being shared with the merchant. Right, they're just sharing a, a unique token, which is shared, and you know since your payment information isn't actually being shared with the merchant, your payment information can't be stolen. And I think that's kind of underpinning a lot of a lot of the ideas out there behind companies like Apple that are saying, hey, we're not going to keep all of your data. Um, because if your data isn't there, then it can't be stolen. It can't be hacked. It can't be taken from you. Um, it can't be misused. Um, and so I think Apple's taken a very different position there. Now, I will say, though, that, you know, bringing it back to the Internet of Things, things side is, you know, a lot of the Internet of Things applications out there are saying, hey, um, I guess it's, I think Benedict Evans wrote, wrote about this, but it's the, the difference between the clever cloud and the dumb sensors. Right? So a lot of the of the Things devices are really cheap, ubiquitous, uh, basically dumb sensors, which are able to sense information and send it back to a cloud, and the cloud does all the processing and uh, understanding at that level, and then deliver service back to an individual based upon that. Um, I don't think it's out of, out of line to expect that we'll see a lot more smart sensors, and smart sensors that can do processing of data uh, um, without having it sent to the cloud. I think it's a, it's a, a lot of what Apple is actually enabling there is you can do once the phone, the phone basically becomes a really, really smart sensor and they're able to provide a better service to you, provide a service to you using just the information on in your phone and just the information that able to receive without sending it to a cloud, without keeping it for a long time, um, without needing to keep all of your past data as, a, uh, as an input to the model to help them deliver, figure out what to deliver to you. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that, right? Um, anyway.
0: Well, I think so. In a world where if advertising is not the end game, then it is the utility of the product, essentially the sensor or, or whatever your, you know, the phone in this case, it's going to be the utility of that, that people are buying, that people are paying for.
1: Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that that means that there's not the scope for advertising based models. I just think they're action differently. You know
0: definitely yeah i mean so the approach of apple is hey buy a product from us it's going to give you all these amazing things that you can do with it oh and by the way we, we don't need to monetize advertising
1: to do that uh i mean they still have very they have well i mean yes and no i mean they still have you know uh, uh significant advertising based businesses to them you know i, I think that what they're saying though is saying, hey, we're not going to share your data with everything. And I think that that's something that fits a lot of the trends that are happening in the third party and uh, the advertising technology ecosystem as well. I don't think that you have to, I mean, the advertising industry is in built on this premise that give me more and more and more and more data about people, and I'll go be deliver better and better and better ads. And you know, I think we're reaching some of the limitations of that or people are understanding that hey, I don't necessarily need to use quite as much data or quite share as much data with other sources. I can use what I'm what I have or what I'm uh, what I'm able to directly observe, like the idea of like first party data, uh, very effectively. And I don't really need to use all their data out there. So, you know, keeping less data doesn't mean that you can't have an advertising based business model, but it does mean that you act it differently, you may not use the same quantity or or of data in the same way. Does
0: That make sense. It does, yeah. I think it's a good point. Um, if you, if the the general public knew the kind of data graph that um, some of these big companies have on them, do you think that they would care, or do you think they'd be shocked? Um,
1: <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> you know, I think that people are shocked, but they're shocked for a very short amount of time. Yeah. Right? I mean, think about it what happens when what happens when a big huge company gets hacked and they know that millions of usernames and passwords and credit card numbers and things go out there? like what happens in the general public? Everybody's really upset for a very short amount of time, and then everyone kind of goes back to doing what they do and but to some degree, we do that because you don't have a choice right like I don't really have a choice to use another bank which doesn't store all of my information, so like I don't really have a choice there, right yeah um. It's interesting. Like this is kind of where Apple Pay uh, comes into it. But like you know, a retailer gets hacked, and retailers get hacked because they store all this credit, they store all this mass information and credit card information. all as people, you know, but with you know, if you start doing more payments where you're not storing credit cards, well, then you're not storing, you're not storing that data up there. You're not storing data that can be hacked. Um, so I think there is a scope for uh, us to make smart changes in how we give data to. Uh, third parties, you know, like our retailers, our banks, and everyone we get services from. Um, uh, I don't think we will change our behavior as much as we could, though. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, there's been ideas in there in the in the world for a while. And there's a there's a there's a uh, a thread called vendor relationship management, which is something's on the Berkman Center in Harvard, but it's also like a general like, theory in terms of how, uh, uh, people manage, manage their data, um, a difference than, 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 um, companies manage personal data, right? That mm-hmm. this idea that, like, people can actually control their data and present it to vendors instead of vendors storing data about us and presenting services back to us. I butchered the explanation, but that's the general idea behind it. Well, it's um, taking,
0: taking the power back essentially and, and being the one who is the gatekeeper.
1: Right, right. But the problem, the 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 problem that's been hard for us so far is in implementing a lot of the business services action upon that. Um, it's not that people don't care; it's that it's hard for them to value it. Right. Mm-hmm. Meaning, like, what do I? What's the? What's the value of me of uh, sharing an individual tweet and in the data that sits in there? It's rather minor, and how do I think about okay, what is that? What is the value of the data that I just released to the world for anybody to use? What is that worth? I, I have no scope or rationalization or any way to ability to kind of manage that or value that in any way that can help me live my life better right now. I, I can't manage the overhead of sharing all those individual data points, and so I don't. You know, I just keep on doing what I'm doing based on the services that are out there. Um, I do think there is a scope for us to make massive changes in how we um, uh, present data and how we give data to uh, third parties, Um, but it's going to take us to be much more conscious in terms of what the pros and cons are.
0: Another topic around big data is this concept of machine learning, um, Mm -hmm. which moves into artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article recently about this is now the next big race of the big tech companies Google, Microsoft, Apple is uh-huh. this idea of artificial intelligence. How how connected does that have to be to the data about us to become useful do you think?
1: Uh, well I, I mean obviously you know having access to data is a part of that right? Mm-hmm. Um, Obviously, these companies. A lot of the technologies that they're building, to so building, you know, various forms of AI, all from I'd say AI-enabled technologies like machine learning, uh, deep learning, um, uh, smart agents, and that side, all the way towards you know weak AI and potentially like other former, stronger forms of AI in the future, you know. Access to data is a key part to enabling a lot of those technologies to have any meaning, right? You have to have lots of data uh, to be able to learn something from them. So, you know, I think that it's a it's obviously a necessity. Um, I do think that at some point, though, once you're able to once you're able to build effective models, and really, what a, a lot of the ways that companies are utilizing AI is to uh, build models around uh, around people's behavior and be able to build increasingly personalized models based on their behavior. Um, and I think once you're able to build models, you're able to discard or not use data, not use as much data as before, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I don't think that this idea that all this data is out there will always be stored and, and maintained and locked up, I don't think that's going to stay the same. But I think we'll be able to be more effective in understanding, okay, we can start, You know, once we build models um, that underlying our services, we don't necessarily need all of the past data behind as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And You talked about this idea of services, and I read where you were talking about um, the idea of the app, right? And so the experience yeah. on mobile screens uh, yeah. being a bank of apps that leads to independent destinations is, is really kind of dying. And so the app, in a sense, isn't the destination anymore. You've got this unbundling effect. and. Uh, tell me your, your take on that, and what you th- what you see out there uh, as far as somebody like Facebook's strategy and going out and, and acquiring a bunch of different apps that fit into an ecosystem.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting topic. I mean, I I think I wrote that about a year or so ago, and there's even been a, been a ton of changes in that area over the last year. And and I, to me, you can see that every uh, release of uh, new operating system devices by Google and Apple is based on this idea of changing how apps work and function. Right? Every new, uh, every new announcement of uh, iOS has had uh, in the last like year or so has had pretty significant announcements around um, the functionalities in terms of um, how apps and the OSs interact with each other. That's basically what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a fundamental like underpinning that's been going through all the changes there uh, you know and, and there's been a lot of like great writing and thought about this and I think particularly because you know these apps are these are tremendously important apps that all of us use and open up every single day and we care about how everything works and there's a lot of money to be made in the ecosystem in terms of selling and delivering apps and so the conversation around this manifests itself in many different ways in terms of what's the right way to to build an app or deliver an app and, and all the way down to, to market an app. Uh, I mean, personally, I feel like a lot of the changes that's going on are bringing the, uh, the scope of getting getting rid of this idea of like siloed apps, you know? And I think it's actually gone. it's even gone more that, with the recent changes by Apple, I think it's actually going even more that way than, you know, when I wrote about a year ago, that we're going more to the point of not necessarily needing... Uh, to open an app for a particular experience. You know, all the changes they're making around being able to, actually Google's gone a little bit more about this recently, but being able to um, access or surf, I would say like access app experiences without even even having them downloaded, right? So it's able Mm -hmm. to, through the search functionality, it's able to pull up, you know, maybe an app that you haven't downloaded quite yet. I, I mean, I wish I wish I knew what the future uh, told here exactly. Yeah, but I think that what we're building towards is where we are building towards an area that's more like the web. Um, that's we deliver in a very different way, where the the OSs are able to deliver a more of a, a web style experience and. Are able to access applications that are able to natively use the, the platform in the same way we we build web apps that are able to effectively utilize the web through browsers, and I think we're we're coming back to rebuilding that and so where that when we open up our phones, we won't have banks of apps and things to access and do. We'll just focus more upon what we want to do and not not how to actually do it because that's the problem with a lot of these a lot of our experiences apps apps nowadays. We can do a lot of great things, but it actually takes a fair amount of overhead from us to figure out how to actually do a lot of things. How do I get information from this app to this app? How do I, oh I need to research this, which app do I open to check it out, and then how do I compare it against another app which I have to access through another interface and then click between the two, right?
0: Exactly.
1: Um, I don't think that that paradigm is going to exist. For for much longer. Um, I think the OS's are going to find a way to deliver that as a much more seamless experience throughout the OS and you're able to see multiple responses and multiple information and multiple shares um, in a much more seamless way throughout uh, through the OS specifically. I, I don't think we're, I think it's not unreasonable to think that the, the whole concept of a, of a home screen, you know, could go away to more of a couple of single points that you know, our less brand experiences, but more of, you know, uh, experiences that we want, less of a, less of brands, like big brands that we have to pay attention to and know versus things that I want to accomplish and do with my phone. Um, and then the OS helps us accomplish those things by tapping into those brands in the back end.
0: It's a super fascinating space for me. And, and something that I pay attention to a lot is the difference between the web and oh, yeah. what's happening there in an app. Yeah. And, the, and the discovery around the discovery process around apps, like you said, I think is filled with friction. Um, even just going to an app store and searching for something that you might need uh, and do want to do in an app is tough. Uh, where do you think a, a startup should put its attention? Do, do you think that today's world build something that's web-based, where now it's going to work in every smartphone, essentially, every screen, through a browser, or are you still seeing a lot of, of these startups try to focus on native applications and then do all the heavy lifting to get people to use them?
1: <laughs> I, I don't know if there's, I don't think there's one answer there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that that answer is a product question, but also a deep marketing question. Yeah. I mean, obviously discovery within the app stores is tremendously hard and it's tremendously hard to not even just to get discovered, for people, for people to find you, but to even promote yourself, a lot of the areas in which we have to advertise and channels to go through are not very. Um, um, uh, I'm not gonna say not effective, but they're getting increasingly expensive um, to utilize. I you know it's interesting. I don't know if the question right now is is web versus uh, native. I think a lot of the changes the OS's are gonna make are gonna be able to build are going are gonna address some of those. I think it's kind of a false choice. I think the OSs are going to build up ways for native apps to be easier. They're going to change. It. They're going to fix the discovery process. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to change the interaction process so that you know you're able to access native apps the same way you access the the web because there are advantages of the platform itself um, to being able to kind of build on the native app itself. You know, I, in general, I think that I tend to focus on like what is. You know, the, my general construct is, you know, what what do all of us use every day? And, and where is all of our attention going? Where is our actions going? And, you know, if if you have to build things, you have to build products and services for the things that people are using. Exactly. And the fact is, is that mobile devices are the things that we're all using. And it's not just in the U.S., but it's international. Um, it's all around the world. And in, in many parts outside of the U.S., the, the phone is even more of a primal method or, a primary method in terms of interacting with technology than computers, right? Desktops, laptops.
0: Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah.
1: And so to that degree, to say, to to choose to do web seems to be a very limiting thing. I mean, the future is, you know, the future is with, you know, I think this is why I'm a believer of the, the watch in those areas. Like, you know, I think that, you know, there's a huge scope for, Technology that is closer to a person, whether it's a phone or a watch or any other sort of kind of wearable devices, and I think you have to build build technologies and build services for those things. I mean, I, I remember. I mean, I remember when I remember not having a phone. You know, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, I I remember. I remember getting my first email address through Hotmail uh, <laughs> when I went to college. So, like, I remember not having a phone for years. I used to travel internationally. and I worked. I had jobs. I did things. I didn't own a phone. Um, uh, and I remember the switch to like laptops is like the primary method for using computers. Um, and I, I, I just—it's hard for me to see that you know, seeing the the phone not being something that's not going to be an incredible driver to, to. Business and 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 everything in my lifetime.
0: Oh, it's it's amazing. You know, there was once upon a time, if you were traveling and needed to talk to somebody, there's this thing called a payphone, which some people listening probably has has never seen one of these things. <laughs> remember having to to carry around change just to make sure you can call home.
1: <laughs> I remember I remember carrying a. I, uh, I mean, I travel internationally a lot. I lived abroad uh, during high school, and I traveled a lot uh, when I was younger and a lot you know, earlier in my life as well. Um, I, I remember carrying calling cards mm-hmm. as a way to kind of method and go from pay phones. <laughs> um, I also remember just asking people uh, just asking people on the street how to get places rather than looking at my phone. Exactly.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Getting lost is a thing of the past, and I don't miss that
1: at all. <laughs> I remember going into gas stations and asking for directions. You know, be something you have to do. I remember going to bus stops and asking people, hey, how do I get from here to here? Exactly. Uh, yeah.
0: Well, the concept of um, web design or the, just the web overall uh, being dead is another article that I saw pop up recently. And their point was to this idea that, like you're saying, you know, that the device that's closest to the person is the thing that gets most attention and that's what you should be focusing on. And so I, it wasn't necessarily a pro app uh, discussion, it was more so a pro user experience kind of discussion. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I look at that and kind of relate that to the idea of the platform and the ecosystem. Are you seeing a lot of, of startups or companies work to build out these platforms and ecosystems as their competitive advantage?
1: What do you mean by that?
0: Um, so to, instead of, um, it, it's, it's somewhat related to the Facebook model of how they, they've built a, a suite of apps um, that, um, you know, for photography you have Instagram, Uh, WhatsApp is in there for communication. And then obviously you have Facebook to connect with your friends. So they're trying to create a suite of apps that essentially is social media or just connecting Mm -hmm. with people. I'm wondering if you're seeing that on the startup side on a much smaller level where somebody's going in and creating, maybe it's a utility, but also trying to create the um, maybe the other side of that utility that vertically integrates them into... A specific niche for a specific set of users.
1: Well, I mean, so the answer is yes, right? Uh, but the the why is is what's interesting and what's valuable here. You know, I think that there's the, like, there's the general idea of like. You know, launching and putting new products out there, which is like the the wedge strategy, right? So, mm-hmm. build something that people love and use as a wedge and towards delivering a wider set of services to them, right? If you don't, if you're not able to build this like one thing that they're going to use and love, then then uh, it can be a lot harder to it, that that can, that's a easier, better strategy in many ways from a product and marketing perspective, rather than trying to build something which does a whole bunch of other things for somebody as well yeah and you have to kind of create that initial um, experience, that initial trust and in this initial like kind of great product for them in the first place. So like there's definitely a scope where people are delivering smaller set of products and then ramping out into like a larger settings. you know I, I have this this thought that you know a lot of the innovation we're seeing in technology today is technology being applied towards um, is more about technology being how technology being applied rather than technology itself, mm. right? And mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll take the conversation in a slightly different way, but this uh, conversation is like how, does, how do things scale? And a lot of the big business route that is getting funded and growing our success stories aren't things we would think about as being high scaling technology type investments. Mm-hmm. But I also think we're at a point where we've seen that technology is these scope to enable it to scale as effectively as possible. Um, but technology is just how it wins. Mm. Right. There's there's some parts of these businesses where they're not going to scale. It's not the most perfectly efficient scaling model, but the the uh, how technology is being applied to the area is a key competitor, key a, a key differentiator for them. And what the technology does is it may it doesn't necessarily always deliver a better actual product or service, but it delivers everything else around it better. Uh, right. Yeah. And so, like, so take the example of like uh, uh, I think food is a perfect space for this. Mm-hmm. Right. So. You know, we all we all eat. We have all had methods for getting food and cooking food and eating throughout the years. Um a lot of the innovation that's been going in there into the food technology space has been around um bottom of the funnel food activities. Basically getting food in your door and helping you um helping you eat eat help helping you eat, right? Yeah. Um and that's the uh uh Direct, all the the various uh, grocery, online grocery stores have happened over the years to, to Instacart and Postmates around delivery to uh, Blue Apron and Plated and Munchery and all those companies are trying to help you actually kind of eat and cook in your home. Well, if you think about it, at the end of the day, like they're just delivering food to you, and, mm-hmm. and uh, but they're doing it in a way which is vastly different than before, and technology has allowed them to deliver much better experiences. Um, they're able to, because of the way they bundle and package food together, they're able to provide a better better product to you. They're able to provide a community to you. You're able to provide recipes. And they're able to layer on all these other kind of sort of services around it that wasn't always there. A grocery store never built a community. right? Mm-hmm. A grocery store never like delivered recipes or, or helped you become a better cook in the same way. Um, but they have found that they've been able to use technology in an effective way to help them deliver all these other things, which makes the overall package better. Um, and that's kind of like, and, that, and that's the scope in a way, I think that, you know, technology is still a, an effective, like force for driving change, even if these things aren't technology at its core.
0: Yeah, I totally see what you're saying. And the thing about your example of food that I find fascinating is, you know, these startups, quote unquote, aren't being spun off by the big uh grocery store brands in the world today. You know, they're being started by people who have that technology foundation. And say, oh, look what we can apply technology to, to create an experience unlike anything else. But the companies that are already selling food, or have been for years and years, aren't the ones that are doing these, these types of innovations that I
1: know of. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's incredibly rare and incredibly difficult for an incumbent to disrupt themselves. Yeah. So it's, innovation always comes from the outside. Um, it's, what, it's what the inside does in response to that disruption that dictates um, their own future. Um, but it's rare for that innovation to come from the inside. It's, just, it's too difficult for organizations with incentive systems and structures and how they've gotten things done to make that kind of truly disruptive change. Like That always has to come from the outside.
0: And maybe that's the reason why, I forget who um, who put this out there, with the idea that 40% of uh, Fortune 500s in 10 years will no longer be here. <laughs> just disruption everywhere.
1: Well, you know, but that's always been the case. I mean, yeah. there's uh, I don't know the numbers to say, I actually don't have the numbers off my head to say if that's that pace of disruption or changes within the Fortune 500 has uh, significantly changed over the years. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I, I just don't know the data points. But the fact is that change has always happened, um, you know, and it's just it's difficult for companies to deal with massive shifts in how things work. Right? Economies change, and the key key ways in which companies have to compete and gain advantage over themselves um, those assets and things change over time. Um, you know, do you remember do you remember the New York Times the documentary a couple years ago? I forget what it was called, but talked about New York Times. It talked about the difficulties in changing from uh, print to digital. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Do you remember the documentary?
0: No, I don't. I didn't see it. All
1: right. So it was a great one with the New York Times. They talked basically and they interviewed like all the different people in the Times um, about how they're managing and dealing with the changes specifically with them, but like journalism. Um uh, and newspapers and reporters in general mm-hmm. and how they're dealing with the change from moving from print to digital and how it's changed changed so many functions. And they went it was interesting, they did they did a lot of interviews with individuals that you can see how it's changing you know, not this brand, this big scope of, of industry, but also how it's changing these individuals in their lives, right? So mm-hmm. the person working on the classifieds, right? Their job isn't as necessary anymore. The person working on local news or this area, right? Um, and the, the the documentary really focused on that change and disruption, and and it talked a lot about how, um, you know, the pluses and minuses associated with that. It was also interesting, though one thing it didn't talk about, but it showed. Right, so you saw pictures of the times and how it used to be, and you saw pictures of, the, of all of the typesetters, mm. all the people out there who were actually citing the type for all the letters and laying out the type to then actually produce the produce the um, uh, uh, to produce the paper. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about all the fact that all like that entire function that got completely disrupted. Right. right, that was completely changed from you didn't have typesetters anymore. Have everything set to like digital kind of printing there. And all of those jobs and all of those functions went away. And so I, I think it's important to, you know, and it's interesting, the documentary didn't talk about that. Hmm. And the, the difference is there is there's a historical context there to say that, like, hey, disruption, change is always happening. Um, this shift that we're going through is, it's important to us because it's what we're experiencing right now. Um, and it's our lives. But it's not that different from innovation disruptions disruption that's happened in the past. And it'll happen in the future for somebody else in a very different fashion. So all these, things that are, this, these disruptions that are happening with the times today will be, you know, mirrored by something else in the next 10, 20 years. I don't know.
0: And speaking of change, I always like to end the show with uh, asking for three critical ways businesses can become faster, stronger, and more reliable with technology today. Um, what do you think about that? What's your take?
1: What's the best answer? But what's the best answers you've gotten on that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's good. Um, you know, I, I've gotten a lot of ideas around being uh, so customer focused and user centered, especially you know if you're creating technology that um, that everything, every decision you do is based on on those types of things. So that's that's definitely been one great uh, reply in that that area.
1: Yeah, that's a good answer. I don't know if I don't know if I have one answer to that. You know, I think that uh, um, you know being better in business is such a huge general uh, idea. I will say though that in this guy, maybe this does harken back to the example you gave, but you know I think the more attention you pay towards what you're delivering versus how you're doing it right? The more valuable and important and sustaining you'll be able to be. Meaning that people care about what technology enables them to do. They don't care about the technology itself. They don't want to know all thing about the, the behind the scenes. They don't want to know how, how it actually happens and works. That's something that a very small subset of us care about. Like even the, the conversation around apps and the future of the web, most people don't care about that. They only care about how to get things done using my phone. Uh, and I, I think the more that we focused on just getting, helping people get things done, the better we can be.
0: Awesome. Well, Taylor, this has been a great conversation. Tell everyone where they can learn a little bit more about you and connect with you on the internet.
1: Oh, sure. So, uh, Taylor Davidson, uh, uh taylordavidson.com, um, uh, at T Davidson on Twitter and Instagram and most other things. Uh, and then foresight.is, dot is F O R E S I G H T dot is, is where uh, the financial modeling stuff is.
0: Perfect. Thank you, Taylor. Thank you. Feed the Machine is a podcast created to help you design a faster, stronger, and more reliable business with technology. If your business needs help in that area or you have questions about how to do that, reach out to us at hello at secondform.com. Also, if you love our show, please give us a rating in iTunes to help us reach more people like you.